0: Welcome to my podcast, I'm Arnie Sabatelli, and this is Hemingway, Word for Word, in which I hope to offer episodes on many of Hemingway's short stories and novels. I will attempt to provide a complex analysis of his writing, pushing to consider ideas all too often neglected by traditional readings of his work. I will occasionally reference, critique, or debate with articles, films, and books written about him, but mostly, these are my own ideas— distilled from many years of reading, writing about, and teaching Hemingway to college and high school students. I recommend reading or rereading the work at hand and having a copy of the text with you as you listen, though this is not a requirement, and I certainly don't want this to feel like school. I hope you enjoy these episodes and that you will consider subscribing to the podcast and giving me your support. Thank you. For my first episode, I've chosen the short story, Hills Like White Elephants, easily the most anthologized of Hemingway's short stories, and one which readers, professors, teachers of all ilks are generally willing to accept as a masterpiece, a story where it is often argued that Hemingway somehow managed, at least this one time, to go beyond his machismo and write thoughtfully and dynamically from a woman's perspective. For me, however, the story is not an anomaly but rather a guide for how to read and think about much of his writing. The story from his second collection, Men Without Women, is extremely short, just three to four full pages, and in many ways feels as if it belongs with his first collection in our time. It strongly echoes stories like Cross Country Snow, Cat in the Rain, and The End of Something, both thematically and in its overall structure and tone, but more on this later. For now, I recommend that you hit the pause button and take some time to reread or read the short story hills like white elephants the story begins as so many of his works do with a concise description of the landscape we see this in so much of hemingway's work the opening of a farewell to arms stories like the end of something or cross-country snow among many others for hemingway it often seems to me that setting is just as important as character, almost as if he looked carefully at the landscape and asked, what story needs to occur here? In Hills Like White Elephants, the title of the story nearly reappears in that opening sentence, though the simile is missing. In its place, we find a simpler, more literal observation. Quote, The hills across the valley of the Ebro were long and white, a lovely rhythmic sentence that to my ear is in iambic pentameter, though I would accept that there are six beats. This rhythmical line of stressed and unstressed sounds, the hills across the valley of the ebro were long and white, certainly has a striking, urgent tone. The rhythmic feel and the positioning of the hills across the valley, along with the adjectives long and white suggest a voice with a natural poetic sensibility, not simply an objective and removed voice, a voice wanting to say with some accuracy something meaningful about the presence of these hills. From the outset of the story, even from the title, I'm struck with something that constantly fascinates me about Hemingway's work, his subtle use of point of view. The next sentence... On this side there was no shade and no trees and the station was between two lines of rails in the sun. Continues the rhythmic poetic urgency but also pushes us to wonder who authors the word this, this side. Whose this is this. We get a stronger suggestion of a point of view in the use of that locating word. The this suggesting that the narrative voice comes from one side of the station. And yet, we haven't met the two characters, who will be seen a few sentences later. Could that first observation, noting the hills are long and white, come from a specific narrative viewpoint? Perhaps from one of the two characters about to appear. Is the title even enmeshed in a specific, probing, poetic point of view? It does contain a simile, after all. The rest of the sentence is odd and striking for another reason. The two knows no shade, no trees, initiate an observation of what isn't there. Not only is there no shade, an exposure to the hot Spanish sun, but there is also nothing to provide shade, no trees. If indeed there is a narrative perspective present, and as you may have guessed, I think there is, grounded in one of the characters, then that person is dwelling on the absence of things, not the presence of the hot sun, which is addressed only as a last prepositional phrase to describe the station, quote, in the sun. That point of view is focused on the barrenness of this literal in-between place, a train platform between train tracks, where trains head in opposite directions. And notice we find both the words lines and rails, emphasizing these straight, parallel, dividing things. Where shelter is hard to find, and that shelter finally only comes in the small slice of warm shade along this side of the building. I don't mean to linger so long on these opening lines, and I'm not intending to literally go word for word in this podcast, but it's important to address the kind of attention to what is referred to too often and far too simply as Hemingway's proclivity for short declarative sentences. Yes, these are short and declarative, but there's clearly a lot more going on as we move from the figurative language of the title with its striking simile into the seemingly objective camera-like opening lines which also upon further inspection feel subtly but clearly grounded in a specific character's point of view. Right away a certain tension is established in the story and the emphasis on the lack of shade, the lack of trees, what's not there, and then the station between the two lines of rails running in opposite directions that will never intersect Shirley suggests a narrative presence cloaked in objective language, a point of view looking to the landscape with deep, poetic intensity, just as the good reader should be looking at the story, locating things in relation to other things and to themselves, almost as if someone is reading the story from inside the story. remainder of that remarkable first paragraph we see still more of this kind of thing especially when we are hit with quote the american and the girl with him two very different non parallel titles american girl with him note he's not with the girl the one word designating nationality no gender until we come to the prepositional phrase with him and the other underscoring gender and age maturity lack thereof, we now see we have two possibilities for the narrative point of view we have been sensing, perhaps even more. If it's the man, or strictly only the man, then one could argue he sees himself as an American first, but his American wife or girlfriend only as a girl, an argument that could certainly support themes and ideas I'll soon address. On the other hand, if the point of view throughout this opening is that of the girl, things get even more interesting, I think. I would say even more compelling in terms of the story's overall meaning. It could well be that she is aware of the man's attitude, that he sees her as still but an immature girl, or at least treats her as such, and she may well view herself in this way when with him, seeing him simply as an American. In this case, the girl could well be the one issuing a criticism. She accepts her girlishness while only designating the title of nationality, to her lover. Yet another possibility is that this point of view is some type of amalgam of these two perspectives, and the implied narrator merges them together at times, or bounces between them regularly. In any event, unlike so many writers of his age, and to this day, here and in so much of his work, the only consistent thing about narrative perspective is its complexity and slipperiness. And we find this even in the works written from a strictly first-person point of view, More on this to come. Note, too, that she soon touches the beaded curtain and comments on it and asks what it says, which also supports the idea that the earlier, seemingly objective mention of the curtain that keeps the flies out could well have been hers, and soon she will mention the hills as well, repeating the title. The addition of the phrase, keep the flies out, is also an implication of the need to let the air in, since beaded curtains are designed to let air in even as they keep, flies out. And like the no trees, no shade, we again find an inverse way of looking, which, if it is the girl's, is a telling detail about her emotional status and a kind of retort to the man later saying that to perform the abortion, all they will need to do is let the air in. Soon the story does appear to settle on the girl, as she now states words from the very title of the story. Quote, they look like white elephants. Right before she states her simile, the story's narrative voice notes that she is looking off at the hills, and the, quote, country was brown and dry, end quote. If we think back to the opening lines of the story, Hemingway invites us to consider that those were her observations all along since the narrator has already noted the landscape with no trees and no shade, and the hills. I think of it this way the more I read the story. We see the title, then the white hills and barren landscape, the beaded curtain, the train station. Then we see the girl looking at the barren landscape and the hills and the beaded curtain, later touching the curtain and asking what it says. Then we hear her repeat the title of the story. Hemingway throws us into a story where the reader is forced to work hard, to ascertain the telling point, even as we strongly feel a telling point. Landing on the girl halfway down that first page as the one who speaks the title certainly nudges us firmly in her direction, though assuming the story is that stable in terms of point of view is a mistake, and its fluctuating range of possible points of view is essential to the final effect and meaning of the story. And for one brief scene toward the end of the story, we even leave the girl's perspective altogether, landing squarely on the man who drinks alone at the bar and notices all the others, quote, waiting reasonably for the train. Had Hemingway wanted to, he could have worked to make the point of view clearly grounded with the girl, something most writing workshop teachers might well urge their students to do. But this unsteadiness in the story at the fundamental level springs from a range of things lacking from what readers normally expect to be given to them in a work of fiction. Clarity about the subject matter. What are they talking about? The abortion is only ever referred to as an operation. Clear designations of who is saying what to whom. The reader at times may even need to slide their finger along the dialogue to be perfectly clear about which one of these two central characters is saying what. Backstory. Other character information. Their ages. How they look. Are they married? These are all lacking. When the waitress appears and the man starts repeating everything she says, it takes the reader some time to figure out that the waitress is speaking Spanish and the man is then translating and conveying what she says to the girl and then conveying back to the waitress what the girl has told him. This dizzying way of transferring basic information across two languages occurs right from the outset of the story. And it both echoes the potential of a shifting or at least unsteady point of view, even as it helps us begin to grasp the still deeper levels of meaning the story pushes us towards. And in this case, the difficulty of translating a different language and communicating fully or effectively surely points to effective, complete expression as a centrally important theme. Notice that the woman's observation about the hills shifts and is revised three times. It goes from, quote, long and white, to like white elephants, to finally, quote, they aren't really like white elephants at all. It's just the color of their skin through the trees, end quote. This progression shows us the woman working to find the right words. Notice, too, how she is constantly placing things in relation to other things what we first see in her, quote, this side, that side observation in the opening. She notes another barrier, like those train tracks, the very different landscapes on either side of the river, though the river is not a straight line like the rails, and nothing is being closed in as the station is, but rather it's two oppositional landscapes, one dry and brown, the other green, lush and alive, one barren, void of life the other full of life. It's as if the girl in the story is looking at the world and working to find a way of seeing and expressing something about it as a painter might work to instill emotional or tonal meaning in a canvas. To say something she needs to say through her expressions, through her artistic expression, as if she is the artist of the story herself, working from within the story to give us the story we are holding in our hands. And how does the man reply? Are her words even directed at him? Perhaps the most telling response comes with her stating the title, They Look Like White Elephants, to which he replies, I've never seen one. Then the girl replies, No, you wouldn't have. And his, I might have. What may well trigger the woman's snide, You wouldn't have, could be precisely that the man is so firmly grounded in a logic-based way of thinking and expressing himself It's almost as if he were a robot who can only process a simile or figurative expressions in purely rational terms. I can't say if the hills look like white elephants or not, because I have never seen one. I do not have sufficient data. But surely, as a human being who can imagine what a white elephant would look like, he should be able to make this imaginative leap. The girl seems all too aware of his willed resistance to understand her even as she's increasingly aware of how his reliance on reason is central to the main thing he hopes to convince her of, to have an abortion, to have the operation. Here is where we find the man's main objective, which contrasts dramatically with the woman who looks out at the hills and the landscape and considers where they are located between two lines of rails, and even touches the bead curtain as she investigates what it says. And whatever it is saying is in small multitudes of fragments or beads that when the curtain falls back into shape, only then is readable and can communicate something. The logic the man uses to try to convince her to have the abortion is quite incriminating. And his, I've never seen one, remark about her simile early on in the story gives us an insight to how he is thinking about the whole issue of whether or not to terminate a pregnancy his main argument, and the one he continually returns to until she threatens to scream if he says it again, is that it is, quote, perfectly simple. But the only way an abortion can be considered perfectly simple is to return to that non-human robotic perspective. Yes, from a purely procedural standpoint, say compared to triple bypass surgery, an abortion is simple. From almost any other moral emotional viewpoint, it is exactly the opposite The woman, in fact, demonstrates throughout the story a desire to complicate her understanding, to see things more fully, to revise her language, even as she points to the same thing in an attempt to communicate the deeply complex emotions she is experiencing. Contrast this to the man who repeats the phrase perfectly simple three times, and she repeats it for him a fourth, I know, it's perfectly simple, with an awfully simple. And a perfectly natural thrown in for good measure to describe the abortion. Like the monotony of the straight lines of the rails stretching on and on, the man's way of describing the operation never changes or shifts or is revised. The woman's emphatic repetition of please, would you please, 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 please please stop talking, very nearly correlates with the number of times the man says the phrase perfectly simple or phrases like it to quickly rationalize why she should have the abortion, as if each of her pleases cancels his simple repetitions. And here she's turning the joke back on him, being repetitive as he is, as a way to underscore the man's own inability to move past his perfectly simple way of addressing a perfectly complex human emotional moral issue. Notably, the woman turns to the language of the artist as a way to contend with her pregnancy though this can also be thought of in an inverse way, that her pregnancy, the miracle and mystery of having a human being growing inside of you, is what sparks her to use artistic expression and understanding. And pregnancy itself is a metaphor for creativity. One thing, one word, or image, or being, is more than itself, or pregnant with meaning. It's no surprise, then, that her simile is revised into a metaphor in the heart of their argument. It is just the color of their skin through the trees. They are no longer like white elephants. They are white elephants. This is an assertion that takes her still further away from the man's simple, logical way of understanding the situation. He even attempts to use logic in his most specious way when he sets up a syllogism that goes something like this. We are happy before you got pregnant. We are not happy now. The only difference is that you are pregnant. Therefore, if we terminate the pregnancy, we will go back to being happy again. That is surely logically sound, but it is emotionally incoherent, as it ignores the significant emotional consequence of what it means to terminate a pregnancy. And the wife's most cutting line in the story is uttered as a retort, and afterward, they, all the people who had abortions, were all so happy. Just as the woman cannot understand Spanish, the man cannot understand the language the woman speaks, the language of the artist, the language that, like the beaded curtain, strings fragments together whose meanings emerge as more than the sum of its parts, as if each line in the story, each image and expression of the characters are like those individual beads whose words the man can't find any way to read. And the remarkable thing here, as in so much of Hemingway's work, is that the character inside of the story is the one who both controls its artistic direction and who is seeing and embracing the complex artistic meaning itself. The girl both creates meaning and is moved by that very meaning. Her, quote, there's nothing wrong with me, I feel fine, end quote, both dismisses and negates the man's flat, unflinching reliance on reason, even as she almost exultantly proclaims that she is fine, that this kind of understanding awakened in her is invaluable and essential in dealing with something as mysteriously wondrous as pregnancy. I think, too, of Hemingway's steady use of pregnancy and birth in his stories and novels. Here, as I briefly noted earlier, it seems as if the whole world is pregnant with meaning for the girl. The hills are white elephants. Something throwaway and unwanted, yes, that is the traditional, common thing to note about the symbolism. But they also offer her an image of her future, swollen, pregnant self. And she is looking forward, across the valley, from where she is now, with awe and wonder. Likewise, the barren versus the lush landscape, with the river running through it, speaks to her two choices. The lushness, the life of pregnancy and birth or the dry barrenness of terminating pregnancy, yes. But also the man's language, the language of pure robot-like reason, which is dry and dead, compared to the lush, complex, and multi-expressive nature of metaphorical language. These all emerge in her mind, and in ours, in that imagery. This transformation begins with the simple, quote, the hills across the valley of the Ebro were long and white. An unadorned, true sentence, as Hemingway would call it. From this springs a deep emotional awakening. This story stands for me as a kind of key through which I'll explore much of Hemingway's work. But let me bring in one other point, one last point. Um, One psychological, philosophical resource I find particularly useful in reading and really getting Hemingway is Carl Jung's division of the human psyche into its two parts, the anima and the animus. For Jung, the animus or masculine part of consciousness is concerned with rationality and reason and logic and scientific understanding, while the anima, the feminine, facet of the psyche is emotive, artistic, non-rational. Clearly in this story, and throughout all of Hemingway's works, we can see this division. The man in the story continually turns to the simple, direct, and flawed logic, while the woman looks to figurative language and the non-rational, associative, and artistic understanding. While, as we will see in stories like Indian Camp, there is a time and place for reason and rationality in the animus part of our psyche as a tool when emotional responses will not help us. Note, this goes far beyond Ken Burns' documentary, which repeatedly addressed how Hemingway was in touch with his feminine side. Burns never worked to address what that means beyond the concept of gender. And this is the mistake so many critics make, to fail to see Hemingway's female characters not as some generic and oversimplified expression of his own fluid sexuality, but rather as a much richer expression of his thinking in regards to how we all gain knowledge and express ourselves through different modalities of language. Notice the girl says in the story several times, quote, I know, I realize. This, as with many of Hemingway's stories, is about different modes of human knowledge, different ways of knowing and expressing complex ideas. It moves far beyond the mundane, though for many critics thrilling discussion of Hemingway's own sexual proclivities. I hope you've enjoyed this inaugural episode of Hemingway, word for word. You can listen right away to my next episode on Hemingway's story, The End of Something, from his first collection, In Our Time. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying my responses to Ernest Hemingway, you might also enjoy reading my posts on my substack, JourneyCasts. There, I write about my experiences as a teacher, short takes on a range of contemporary and modern poetry, fly fishing, the outdoors, the Adirondack Mountains, and many other topics. Check it out at arniesabatelli.substack.com. That's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T-E-L-L-I at substack.com. I'd also like to mention another way you can support this podcast if you don't want to make a monthly contribution. You can go to buymeacoffee.com and find me there and make a one-time contribution. The address is buymeacoffee.com forward slash Arnie Sabat 7. I'm not sure why it's that, but it's A-R-N-I-E-S-A-B-A-T 7. And there you can find instructions on how to make a one-time contribution. Thanks again. Take care.